Before we read, <clears throat> let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We thank you that your Word is living and active, and that every time we hear or read the scriptures, you are speaking to us. Lord, may we rest in the sufficiency of your God-breathed Word, which can thoroughly equip us for every good work. Amen. The first Bible reading is Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And the second Bible reading is Acts chapter 7 verses 51 to chapter 8 verse 4. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Well... Stephen's uh, speech is not exactly Evangelism 101, is it? You stiff-necked people! 
Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You're just like your prophet-killing ancestors. And now you've even betrayed and murdered the righteous one that the prophets had said would come. Now this is a young Jew on trial by the very same people, the very same council that only months earlier had sentenced Jesus to death. And he's firing out the most serious accusations that you could ever fire at a Jew. And that's bold, isn't it? And you'd be excused for thinking that this was one of Jesus' special 12 lieutenants, his apostles, but he's not. Actually, Stephen is just like you and me. His role in the church was helping to distribute food to the widows. But here is this guy, this ordinary Christian, standing up before hostile authorities, boldly declaring that Jesus is the risen Son of God. But it doesn't get him very far, does it? Uh, I don't think uh, even Stephen, uh, I think Stephen himself probably knew exactly where this was headed. uh, Because straight away, imagine the frenzy in that little courtroom. They're so angry, they don't want to hear another word. They cover their ears and they run at him screaming at the top of their lungs. They grab him, drag him outside and begin to stone him to death. And with his final words... Stephen shows what's behind his boldness. He shows the motivation that's driving his boldness. Have a look at verse 60. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, which is code for he died. And just like Jesus, Jesus' cries, one of his last cries on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen's dying desire is that these angry, hateful people who are killing him, that God will forgive them, that they'll be reconciled to God and know his grace and his mercy. Now, that's pretty bold, but actually Stephen's boldness isn't what we're focusing on in this passage today. I pray that none of us find ourselves in that situation, but I pray that if we do, that God would give us that same boldness and courage and love and compassion that Stephen had. But actually, in this passage and this story and what we're focusing on today, Stephen is more a catalyst for what happens next. Because we see there in uh, that very next verse, eight, chapter 8, verse 1, that at that time, the stoning of Stephen changed something. The stoning of Stephen caused a new era and a new shift and something new to happen. Have a look there at chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So it was so bad that everyone except for these 12 apostles had to leave Jerusalem. 
And what are they doing as they run for their lives? We'll have a look down at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word as they went. Now, we all love a good plot twist, don't we? You know, whether it's uh, Darcy, Mr. Darcy and Mr. Wickham's role reversal in Pride and Prejudice or, or Bruce Willis turning out to be one of the dead people in Sixth Sense or if it's just, you know, Anna at the very end turns away from Christoph to her sister Elsa for her act of true love in Frozen. We all love a, a good plot twist where suddenly things change and they don't end the way we thought they were going where suddenly it takes a left turn where we thought we were going right or straight. And here in Acts is one of those plot twists in those verses we just read. Because what happens in that last verse we just read is the beginning of the fulfilment of a promise that Jesus made before he left to go back to heaven. Back in the very beginning of Acts, and you'll see on the, uh, you've got a little insert there this morning. Uh, you see on the back of that insert, you'll see some verses, some scriptures. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This is the very beginning of this book. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he went up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So here, Luke's saying that, before Jesus left, he gave his 12 lieutenants, his 12 apostles, special instructions. And this is what he said. He said to them, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, six chapters later, sparked by the death of Stephen, Jesus is sending his witnesses out. Except it's not what we expect, because we're expecting the 12 lieutenants, the 12 apostles, aren't we? Here, instead, Jesus is just sending out all sorts of Christians like you and me. Not apostles, just regular, everyday believers. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the very first push of the gospel going out of Jerusalem into the world is not Jesus' special apostles, but it's just normal Christians. And it tells us something important about mission. It tells us something important about our role and our place and God's plan and purpose and design and will for us in his mission. See, because in the heart of a disciple, in the DNA of a Christian, is a boldness for mission. Is we are wired to be on mission. And God has called us to be telling people the good news. That's part of our DNA. Well, a few uh, verses after uh, just explaining that uh, there are certain people in the church who have particular focuses and particular roles for speaking the good news. Uh, on that second passage on your uh, outline there, uh, Ephesians 4 tells us that actually it's the responsibility of every Christian to be building up Christ's church by speaking the message of Jesus. Have a look 
Ephesians 4 verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, and the truth there is the gospel, the truth about Jesus. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow in every respect, uh, sorry, we'll grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See here, even though there are certain people in the church, the apostles, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, certain people who have special particular focuses on speaking the truth in love, it's not exclusive just to a few. It's not saying that just a few people in church do and the rest of us do something else. Actually, it's something that all of us, as God's people do, every part doing its work, speaking the truth in love to build up God's church. And so that means that being bold in mission, it is actually an obedience thing to Jesus. Because Jesus has called us to be speaking the truth in love. He does actually call us to tell others what he's done. But it's not just an obedience thing. Because it's a compassion thing. It's a love thing. Now, um, when Keely and I were first married, we lived in a tiny little apartment uh, at the top of Sydney. And uh, one afternoon, we had someone come and knock on our door. And when we opened the door, it was a young Jehovah's Witness. And uh, he was coming and he had his little Watchtower magazine. And so we invited him in. We said, oh, come on in, come on in. You know, would you like something to drink? Tea, coffee? Oh, no, no, I'm all right, thanks. And, and uh, you know, are you sure? You know, come in and chat and, you know, oh, no, that's all right, it's all right. And after a little while, it became apparent that he really didn't want to be there. And, you know, we're trying to have dialogue with him and, oh, you know, tell us about what you believe and, oh, what about this? And, and in the end, he just said, oh, look, I'm really sorry. I've got a wine and cheese evening and I've got to go. And I, I remember thinking, man... <laughs> Like, why did you even knock on my door? You thought you'd get a quick, you know, five-second one in and, and rack up your, your brownie points or something. But for disciples of Jesus, it can't be like that, can it? We don't share the good news of Jesus to try and get some brownie points. We don't share the good news of Jesus out of compulsion. We share the good news of Jesus, first and foremost, out of compassion, out of love out of seeing that people are lost and need Jesus, out of caring about their soul and how they will spend all of eternity. See, mission for Christians is so much different. And the goal of mission isn't my benefit. It's not some pyramid scheme where I gain something out of it uh, when I tell people about Jesus. It's not like I've got to make a certain number of sales uh, so, you know, I can, can tick off and get my commission. We don't earn brownie points with God. We don't earn favour. We don't earn material gain. And we don't do evangelism. We don't do mission to try and make our experience as a disciple more exciting or acceptable. You know, we're not doing it just to kind of win public favour uh, so that we're not the outcasts. As Christians, we don't, we don't do mission 
in order to attack others. It's not some, some game where we just go and try and make ourselves feel superior. We don't try and get in arguments. We don't want to get in arguments. We do mission because we know and we see that people need Jesus. And we live in an area, don't we, surrounded by people who need to know Jesus. See, we do mission because we know that God is sending his son back into the world and Jesus will come and Jesus will judge the earth. And we know that anyone who has not made peace with God's son, well, we know that for them there's nothing but judgment. Now, um, you guys probably know Penn and Teller. Has anyone seen Penn and Teller fool us? They're comedians, uh, American. Uh, anyway, there's a big one and a little one. Penn is the bigger one. Uh, Penn Gillette, and he's an atheist. Uh, and he said this. And I've always said, you know, actually you'll find this on your thing. That's uh, at the bottom of your page. I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people that don't proselytize. So I don't respect anyone from any religion who doesn't try and win other people over. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Now, I don't know if that sends a tingle down your spine, but here we have an atheist saying, hey, Christians, if you really believe this, get your act together. If you really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the only way to come to God, the only way to be forgiven, to have life, to have peace, to be saved, then why on earth would you not be telling people? Are you not telling me, says Penn, because you hate me? Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe your friend brought you here. I want you to thank them today. Thank, you, thank them that they were bold enough to invite you. And the reason why they did that is because they care about you. Thank them. Or maybe you're not a Christian and you're here and you're thinking, well, why haven't my Christian friends invited me? Why haven't my Christian friends cared enough about me, if they really believe this, to kind of break through that awkwardness and have that conversation with me? Now, I've got to agree uh, with Bianca, actually. Uh, I'm not naturally very bold. Uh, as a kid, I was quite a shy kid. Um, I don't enjoy awkwardness. I think that's probably most of us. 
I prefer just blending in. And I've had to learn, and I am still learning all the time, how to be bold in mission. I've got a long, long way to go. But by God's grace, it is something we can learn. And those fears and those worries are things that we can overcome. Because when the pain of not changing is greater, is greater than the pain of change, then we'll change. So when we realize that if we don't get past our fears and share the good news of Jesus with our friends and family and neighbors, when we realize that if we don't get past those fears and do that, that actually something far, far worse can happen. Then thank God that we can learn to be bold. And so I want to spend a little bit of time now just thinking really practically. I think, you know, all of us who truly love Jesus want to see our friends and family saved, don't we? We really do. We really do, but I think for so many of us, we find it really hard to know how do you go about that. So we're going to get really practical today. Uh, I'm going to start off with the A, B, C, and D of getting prepared for mission. And that sounds complicated, but it's not really. The A is to pray. Now, I haven't put these on your sheet, uh, but they'll go out in our newsletter this week. Uh, the A is to pray. Like Bianca reminded us this morning, pray. And that's a prayer. I don't think I've ever prayed that God would give me an opportunity to share Jesus with some, someone and not had an opportunity. It's a prayer that God just answers in some of the craziest ways. B, it's actually really important that we have our goals straight. What are we shooting for? What are we aiming at? You know, what is my goal here? Am I trying to sit someone down and do a full gospel presentation with them? Does that, you know, is that the measure of success? Or is it the measure of success that you know, we had a conversation about Jesus and we're still friends afterwards? Or do I measure the success by how awkward it was? So I think often we kind of measure uh, whether we're being faithful in mission on things that are actually not the goal or the target. No, the goal is have I helped this person think about Jesus and what he's done? Have I helped and encouraged this person to consider Jesus, who he is and what he's done for them? That's a pretty achievable goal. See, what we want for them at the end of the day isn't an ideology. We don't want them to sort of sign up to an ideology. We're not trying to convince them of a way of thinking. We're not trying to convince them to become a member of a church. We're not trying to convince them just to understand and go, oh, okay, now I understand what your gospel is. No, at the end of the day... Our goal is that they know Jesus and come to Jesus. Our goal is that they get saved and they're made right with God. Now, it's really helpful in thinking about what our goal is that we don't put on us a goal that we can't achieve. Because in setting what our goal is, we also want to say what our goal isn't. And our goal and what we're responsible for is not their response. And so we're not responsible for how someone responds. There's nothing I can do that can make someone respond in a certain way. And so as long as you and I have been faithful in pointing people to Jesus and encouraging them 
to look at who he is and what he's done, whatever they do with that, we're not responsible for that. If they decide not to, that's not a failure. God will do that work. So A, pray. B, know your goals. C, get your message straight. Now, if you have you ever tried to just give a simple gospel outline? If someone said to you, hey, what is the gospel? You've got 30 seconds, elevate a conversation. Would you know what to say? Would you spend the first 15 seconds going, oh, the next 15 seconds? Uh, you know, I've, I've asked people this question before and they start talking about Abraham and Noah and I think, why are you talking about Abraham and Noah? You know, Jesus, it's about Jesus. But what, what are the essentials? You know, what, what do you have to get in there? What, what doesn't matter? And there's some really helpful ways to get your message straight. Uh, so if you go online and you look up two ways to live, you can do a great little gospel presentation. There are a lot of great books. Uh, I could lend or recommend some. Know and Tell the Gospel by John Chapman. How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy by Sam Chan. Whatever you do, do a bit of work and get your message straight. What is it that people need to know? And lastly, get your life straight. Because we know, don't we, that if our lives are not lives that demonstrate what it looks like to follow Jesus, if our lives don't commend the gospel to people, that whatever we say is not going to hit its mark. So we need to make sure we're actually living lives like we've been looking at this term, lives of obedience to Jesus. But don't let your imperfection stop you from talking to people about Jesus. Get down on your knees, repent, ask God to change you, and change. Okay. A, pray. B, uh, get your goals straight. C, get your message straight. And D, get your life straight. Now, that's the preparation. What does the actual mission look Now, you'll notice on the back of that uh, sheet I gave you, uh, there's a little bit of a table. And here, I think this is a really helpful way to think about evangelism. And it's thinking about the kind of relationship it is. So, I've called this Know Your Game. Now, if you know me, you'll know that I hate cricket. Uh, I think it's a terrible sport. Anyway... It's perfect for this illustration because uh, there are three different types of cricket matches, aren't there? There's the 2020 match, which is a super fast game. And when guys are playing the 2020 or girls, uh, when you're batting in a 2020 match, you don't wait for a good ball. You just swing like crazy at every single ball, don't you? Because you know you don't have much time in there. You don't have many balls. So you just go crazy and reckless and you're just swinging for the fences. 2020 match. And, you know, there's some relationships in our life that are like that. You sit next to someone on the bus, that's a 2020 match. You might only have that bus trip to talk to them. That's a very short thing. And so if you're in a 2020 match sitting on the bus with someone and you think, oh, I'm going to build a relationship with this person and, you know, maybe down the track I'll ask them about Jesus, you'll never get there because the bus ride will finish and it's game over. And so you've got to recognize, well, what are the relationships in my life that are these kind of flash, quick, one-off, 2020 matches, and I've just got to swing at every ball that comes. I've got to be real bold and just jump in there. And then uh, there's the one-day match. 
So these go for a bit longer. And I think of these as relationships that are kind of, they're relationships for a term, for a period of time. Maybe you're in a soccer team, you know, so you've, you might have a few years with these people. Uh, maybe it's a neighbour. You might get a few years with them. You might get a long time with them. Relationships with colleagues can often be like this. You know, people move on. And so there you go, well, actually, I need to play a little bit of a long game. If I just start swinging at every ball, they're going to think I'm a maniac and they're not going to want anything to do with me. But by the same token, I can't play it too long because I'll miss my chance. And then there's the test match. These are your lifelong relationships, your family, your lifelong friends. These are the ones that actually you need to play a slow game, don't you? You need to really put in the hard yards of relating and loving and getting to know them and building up that relationship. And there you want to actually wait till you get the good balls. You don't want to just swing at anything. You want to wait until there's good opportunities. You're not going to wait for the perfect opportunity because it never comes. But you'll pick your time a little bit more. And so, as you look at that table, I want you to just think about the people in your life. And I, I'd encourage you to go home, make a little bit of an exercise of actually putting names in these categories. Where are these people? But then as you look across the bottom of the table, think about what stage they're at. And that's what stage your conversation is at. Uh, so you see there on your, on your thing, there's the little question mark. Conversation about Jesus means you haven't had one yet. And so you could put your, you know, you get on the bus, you sit down next to someone, and to start with, they're up in the top, top left because they're a 2020 match and you haven't talked to them about Jesus yet. So what you're doing is you're thinking, well, how do I talk to them about Jesus? The next column over, you've got the people who you've had a conversation or two or three. You've had, you've, you have talked a bit about Jesus, but you're not quite sure where do you go from there. And the last column is people who you've talked to about Jesus and they've shut the door. And they've said, no, actually, I don't want you to talk to me about Jesus. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't want uh, you, you know, hassling so what do we do with each of those? I think it's really helpful when you think of people in these kind of categories, it's really helpful to think, well, well where do we go from there? Well, I think some helpful things are that at every point, we want to care about people. We care about them. The reason why we want them to know Jesus is because we care about them. And so if we come across as people who are just trying to sell, 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 but not interested in them, they're not going to care what we have to say. It's that old saying, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so we want to love people and care for them. We want to get to know them. But we also, at some point, need to just jump in. So what do we do here? What's a good first starting point? Well, you see I've got some little helpers. Now, one of the things I want you to take home today is that questions are your friend. Nobody likes an information dump, do they? Questions are your friend. So I've got some suggestions there for sort of starter questions. Hey, what do you think about Jesus? You know, what are your thoughts? Do you reckon he really lived for a start? Do you reckon he did miracles? You know, what do you think? Do you know, you know? Good starter question. What about this? Hey, if you died tonight and you stood in front of God, what do you reckon he'd say to you? What do you think would happen to you if you died tonight? They're good starter questions, aren't they? 
And then what do you do with that? You let them answer. You maybe ask a few follow-ups. And you just leave it. Because the temptation there is to just pounce and start downloading. But you leave it. And you wait for another time later. But what do you do with the person you've had the conversation with before and you don't know how to kind of pick it up and keep it going? Well, you can do a little bit more getting behind the sur- beneath the surface. Hey, we had a conversation ages ago and I remember you said this. I'm really interested. I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about, you know, how you came to that conclusion. You know? Dig beneath the surface. Or some motivational questions. What do you think makes life worth living? If there was one thing that was taken from your life and made life not worth living, what would it be? And then what about the person who said, that's enough, I don't want to hear about it? Well, the best thing to do, the most loving thing to do is to respect that, isn't it? We acknowledge, okay, that's fine. Um, You know, I'll respect that. Uh, It's a big part of my life. And so, you know, uh, you know, that's, I would love to be able to share stuff with you, but if you don't want to hear it, that's fine. And then you respect that and you keep loving them. You keep investing in them. And you leave the door open for the future. And then my last point is keep coming back to Jesus. People have all sorts of interests and questions and it's easy for conversations to get kind of railroaded. There are things to get tripped up on and stuck on. But at the end of the day, some idea or question or discussion, as interesting as it might be about creation or evolution or ethics, that's not going to lead someone to Jesus. And so keep coming back to Jesus. What he's done for them is incredible love and grace. Well, we are God's ambassadors. I encourage you to get prepared. I encourage you to get serious and get out there. And let's do it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have chosen us uh, for the most important mission, the most important task, the most important project of all of history. Uh, and we know that we're so weak and frail and fragile and incompetent uh, and it's amazing that you would use us as all, at all as your mouthpieces, but we pray that you will use us powerfully and help us make the most of every opportunity you give us to point people to Jesus. Amen.